Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we've been looking at the uh, the book of Hebrews uh, here at Focus, and we're up to chapter 3. We went up to chapter 3, verse 1 last week. So chapter 1, uh, the first week we talked about, well the first week is an intro, and then the week after that we talked about the fact that Jesus is God. That's what he says in the first chapter. The second chapter he talks about that Jesus is human, and he concludes that, or we did, uh, rather, at the beginning of chapter 3 last week by pointing out that uh, what we're supposed to do is recognize Jesus, this God, man, this, this, this man who is both fully God and fully man, that he is our Messiah. He's the hero that we've been waiting for, at least the Israelites have been waiting for. And that he's the Messiah for the whole world, though, and not just for the Israelites, and, and that we should fix our eyes on him. And tonight, the author of Hebrews is going to talk a little bit about what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. And it really is, you could argue, the only thing the church is called to do, <laughs> in one sense. There's certainly other ways you could describe what we're going to talk about tonight, but in many ways, You could argue this is the only thing the church is called to do, which is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to help each other fix our eyes on Jesus. And um, so we're going to talk about what that means, what that looks like a little bit. And as usual, he's going to reach back to a story from the Old Testament in order to give a picture of where we are. And we're going to talk about that story tonight as well. It's actually one of my favorite stories, so I'm happy to do so. Before we jump into Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 2 through 4, 2, uh, let me again just welcome you. And I know we have some watch parties that happen now and then, so please feel free to share this video, share the watch party, do the watch parties. If you ever have any comments or, or questions or prayer requests, we had a request last week that we took care of and, and um, uh, was then removed from the comments, which is totally fine. We also want to honor your privacy. So, But if, any, but if you have any comments, if you have any requests, if you have any uh, and even just encouragements that you see from tonight, you want to share it on that page, go for it. We'd love to see that, love to interact with you as much as we can through this medium. So I want to thank you for that. And then let's just say a, a quick prayer and then we'll jump into our passage tonight. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the gospel, for the incredible message of your love. We are so grateful that you were willing to lay aside the very form of your deity in order to take on the, the, the form of man, uh, to be a human, uh, in order to, that you understand our temptations, you understand our suffering, and most of all, that you could take death so that we wouldn't have to taste it. Lord, we are still learning what that means. But we ask tonight, as we continue to move forward through this, you would just continue to enlighten us, you would continue to teach us that in a, in a world where there's so many things we don't know and so much news, we don't know which to trust and which not, Lord, we thank you for the good news in this scripture tonight that we can trust being from you. And pray that you would just guide us and lead us. Speak, Lord, your words in your heart tonight. Don't let me get in the way. Work through me, uh, Lord, and around me if you have to. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. All right. So Hebrews 3. So we ended, as I said, in verse 1. It said, fix your eyes on Jesus. I'm going to move a little bit. I noticed last week I was covering it a little bit. So uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, So after he says that. He talks about Jesus being God, Jesus being man, then he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He then goes on to say this. He was faithful to the one, he, that being Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house was greater than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. 
bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. There is a, so much in that, right? I, I would imagine you're a little lost, right? Even just reading it, it's like, wow. But one thing we see over and over is that word house and being God's house. And that actually is the thread that makes this little section make sense. So let's start at the end. What's the point he makes? The point he makes is that we are God's house, right? He says, we, in fact, are God's house. Well, that's a weird thing to say, but let's back up and let's walk through this passage just a little bit more slowly because this is going to be really important, tie into other things today, to understand what is even happening here in this analogy of being God's house. So he starts with this. He says, Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house. Okay, this is actually a quote. We're going to see the, 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 the quote again later. He's going to repeat it. This is a quote that comes from Numbers, Numbers 12, I think. And what happens is when, when God is saying this, he's actually really uh, praising Moses. This is not a put down, he's just a servant in the house. He's saying he's a faithful servant in all God's house. Of all the people in God's house, Moses is sort of the faithful servant. And what actually God actually says is that he makes this point. He says, when I spoke to the prophets and I speak to the prophets, I speak through visions and dreams. But when I speak to Moses, it's much more personal. We're face to face. Turns out, and if you read the whole text, you'll know this, but face-to-face -face is a little bit metaphorical still. But nonetheless, the idea is much more close, much more personal. So it's like Moses is a servant in God's house. He's actually there with God, right? Now, this is interesting because we talked last week about the Ark of the Covenant and the whole temple situation. So the temple is known as God's house. It's the place that God... And again, God and the people of God knew this wasn't literally true, but it's the place God wanted them to think of as his house, as the place where he resided. The Ark of the Covenant was like his throne. But before the temple, there's the tabernacle. And the reason there was a before the temple is because the Israelites were wandering in the desert. They hadn't settled yet. They were nomads, and they wandered for a long time. And all that wandering, God still wanted them to have a sense of him being with them, and he wanted them to have a special place to go to be with God. So he had them create what's called the tabernacle, which is a big, big tent. And it's a huge tent, and in fact, it turns out that the instructions to build the tent exactly mirror in dimensions the, it's just like the temple to scale. It's smaller, but it's like it's the temple in the tent. And so Moses is very much responsible for the building of God's house, right, so to speak. And Moses is known as a faithful servant in God's house. In both cases, God being with Moses or God being in the temple, there's this idea of God's house being where you go to meet with God, being sort of up close and personal with God. Rather than standing outside or, or looking up at a balcony at the king, you're actually in the house with the king. And so he says, Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house. But then he goes on and says this, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. This is another one of those moments where he's making the better than contrast. As important and amazing as Moses is, he was just a servant in the house. But Jesus is over the house. What does it mean to be over the temple? It means you're God. Again, this is just another statement of Jesus' deity in another way. I don't think any Hebrew could fail to understand what it would mean for Jesus to be over the temple. The only person over the temple is God. God is in charge of the temple because it's his house. He's the one who owns it. So I think it is just another declaration of Jesus' deity. But then he goes on and says this really weird thing. He says, and we are his house. Well, that's interesting. It's really fascinating because it's not the only place in the New Testament that it says this about believers. This is actually a way to describe the church. The people of God who are the church are described as the temple of God or the house of God. 
And what does that mean? Same thing it meant before. Turns out that just as Moses went face to face with God, and just as people went to the temple to meet with God, so the church should be seen as a place where God is. God is in the midst of the church. God is among the church. Of course, God is everywhere, just like he was when the temple existed. But there is something special about the church. And what is it? What is it that makes us special? What is it that makes us the house of God? Well, the Messiah, Jesus, is God with us. All of this is about God's move to us. And the church is not made up to be an elitist place where we, because we're so much better, we suddenly, are, God feels worthy to be in us. But quite the opposite, that we are given this servanthood position of revealing to other people God, of ushering people in to meet with God, not with us, but with God. But who are these people? What makes somebody part of the house of God? What makes them qualified, in a sense, to be part of the house? And this is what he says. We are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. What is the confidence and the hope the author of Hebrews is talking about? The very thing he's trying to get the Hebrews to really grab onto, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's that simple. The people, the house of God, are the people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's it. Not anything that qualifies us because of our great works, or our great love, or our great efforts. <laughs> it's simply that this is the definition. And this word if, by the way, I want to be clear, he says, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence. I know we can read that as if it's saying that if you stop believing, then you're no longer part of God. That isn't really the point. The point he's making is this is definitional. The house of God is those people who believe in the Messiah. Yes, if you don't believe in the Messiah, if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, then you're not part of the house of God. This is really important to understand for the church, right? Because the church, what people don't understand about the church is when they define the church, they may define us a whole lot of different ways. But the Christian church really only has one definition, right? There's, there's a lot of things we can disagree on and still say that that person is my brother, that person is my sister, that person is part of the house of God, that person is part of the church. There's a lot of different ways to think, a lot of disagreements, a lot of questions, a lot of wrestling, a lot of approaches. But the one thing that you cannot remove, the pillar that holds up this entire house of God, is Jesus. The cornerstone, it says, is Jesus. If we remove that, then, then we're not a church. You can't, you, you're not, regardless of what you want to say, you are not a Christian church. You may be some other church, you may be a good nonprofit organization, but if you remove the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, according to the author of Hebrews, well, that's, you're not part of the house of God. You're part of something else. But, as long as you have that, there's a lot of room, isn't there? There's a lot of room for disagreement, a lot of room for different things. This is what becomes the pinnacle for us. This is the definition of the house. Those whose confidence and hope are in Christ are God's house. That's the point. Now, this all builds on itself, so hang with me because this is cool. All right? So this is good. The author of Hebrews is, is making a point that, it's the, the, that, that Jesus is superior to Moses because he's over the house, and he's still over the house, by the way. That's why it says Jesus leads the church. He is the head of the church, right? He's still over the house. But now it says that we are God's house as we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And then he goes on and says this. So the Holy Spirit says, so he's saying, look, this is what God is saying to you. The Holy Spirit, to the Hebrews, they understood it. They understood the Holy Spirit as being when God would speak to prophets and God would speak to priests and God would speak to kings. When God had a special message to say, the Holy Spirit would bring it. And you listened. You didn't, you didn't want to not listen to the Holy Spirit because whatever he said was going to be true. So this is what the author of Hebrews says. So the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, what is he talking about? Some of you may know, but the Hebrews definitely knew. When he starts telling this story, they know right away what he's talking about. When he references the rebellion, when he references the time of testing in the wilderness, when he references 40 years, they have no question, no doubt what this is all referencing, right? They know exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's a story that is ingrained in their culture and in their life, right? It's a story that is sort of the, the, the sequel to the Exodus, which is the defining moment in the Israelites' life. So Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage. Many of you are familiar with that story. He leads them out of Egypt, out of bondage. But it's interesting, he isn't just leading them nowhere. He's leading them somewhere very specific. He's leading them to something called the promised land. And the point of rest, where he says, they shall never enter my rest, is the Israelites, they were slaves for 200 years, and then they wander in the desert for 40. And the point is, the promised land, there's this land that God has promised them where they get to settle. This will be your land. This will be your home. You no longer have to wander as nomads. So it's very literally rest, right? It was a time to actually rest. And so, but they don't get to enter the rest for some reason. And this is what the author is reminding them of. So we're actually going to look at this story of the promised land, the rest that it was supposed to be, and why they're denied it. Because this is so foundational to what the author of Hebrews wants them to understand, that for us to understand it, we need to have at least a little familiarity with the story. So if you've heard it before, it'll be good to hear it again. If you haven't, here it is for the first time. Here's the story. And this comes from Numbers. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, so, sorry, a little more context. They finally cross the land. They get to the promised land. This is it. This is where God said, this is your land. It's time. Moses is about to, he's, he's getting old, he's about to go on, but, but they're going to enter the land. But what they do is the, the land is occupied. There's people there. So they send spies into the land, all right? And this is where we are. When Moses sent them, that is the spies, to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak or few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. See, Moses believes this is the land. I think he's sending the spies, we find out in another context, because the people really wanted them to. They, weren't, they didn't believe this land was maybe what it was supposed to be. So Moses sends the spies, but I think he, he is asking these questions because he knows the answers are going to be in their favor. The promise was that the land would be full of milk and honey, meaning very fruitful. So when he asked them to bring fruit to the land, he wants them to do that so that they will see that God did not lie to them. Okay, so let's go on. So they went up and explored the land. It describes the land a little bit. We're going to skip ahead. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. A single cluster of grapes, which is so big, so heavy, that it takes two of them to carry it on a pole between them along with some other fruit. So it's very fruitful. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because the cluster of grapes the Israelite cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, and there they reported to them, and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. 
We went into the land in which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. This is not what they wanted to hear in that sense. The fruit is there. Everything God promised is true. And interestingly enough, God did not promise them the land would be empty. But I think they thought it might be. <laughs> or at least it would be filled with people that would be easily removed. But the fact is, these are very large people in the land. And there's a lot of them. And so they're, trust, they're not convinced that God is really going to fulfill his promise. God said it's your land. They don't think he's going to fulfill it. But then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone with them said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. In other words, they went from it's fruitful to it's very bad. It's barren. It just devours us. Right? Because now they're just trying to convince people not to go into the land. doesn't matter what the reality is. They do not want people to go because they are afraid. Because they do not believe God's promise that he will give it to them. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Nephilim were like grass or giants. He says, we seem like grasshopper in their own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So this is the story. They end up at this point not going in because they don't believe it's theirs, and they end up wandering for 40 years before they come back, and the next generation gets to enter the land. God is angry with them. But why is God angry with them? That's the point that the author of Hebrews wants to make sure we don't miss. What is it about the rebellion? Why did God not allow them in the land? Well, he's angry with them because they didn't trust him. It's not because of a certain specific act of disobedience or some momentary lapse or some question or, or that they just didn't follow some law exactly right. It's because they didn't trust him. They refused the gift of God just because they didn't believe God was big enough or honest enough or something. And God had promised them rest from wandering. He promised them a land of their own. See, this is amazing. This is something, this promised land was made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. So the Israelites have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And then they leave Egypt, and now they're still waiting and waiting and waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And when they finally get to the fulfillment, they don't take it. The gift is there, but they refuse it because they don't trust God. They're afraid of the giants in the land, they're afraid of the things they see, and they don't trust that God is really being honest with them. They don't believe him. They're not depending on him to fulfill what he said. And they insisted instead, instead of trusting God's promise and entering rest and being able to just hang out in the promised land without all of the, the, the providing for themselves, instead of trusting him to give them that, they would rather take the risk that, that, that they would rather bet on the fact that he's lying to them or mistaken and instead go back into the wilderness and continue to work and fend for themselves. So they choose not to rest, and God lets them have what they chose. And the issue here is all faith. And we know that's the point the author of Hebrews is making, because he goes on to say, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
I know how it works in the church. Those of you who've been raised in the church, you see the word sin in a passage and everything else disappears. You get so focused on that word sin and you get to feeling guilty and condemning and you begin to think of all the things that you do that are wrong. You begin to think of all the actions you perform that make you guilty. You begin to think of all the things you define as wicked and, and <coughs> you get caught on this word sin. And yes, it's an important word and it's a real thing and your behavior matters, but that is not the point of this verse. In this verse, the point of sin is always what? unbelief, right? See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, or that none of you be hardened by sin's what? Deceitfulness, believing the wrong things, being fooled into believing something false. These verses are about faith. The people who rebelled against God and did not receive the promise they'd been given because they did not take it, because they did not believe that God was giving it to them, because they did not receive it, would even be better than just saying they didn't take it. And so he says to the Hebrews, in the same way, you need to help each other believe. Some of you are questioning, are, are beginning to think that the Messiah is not the Messiah. And in the same way, think of it this way, in the same way that the Israelites were waiting for hundreds of years for the promised land and then somehow turned away from it, how amazingly stupid have you thought they always were all this time? That they amazingly turned away from it rather than trust God. Do you not now see that we've been waiting thousands of years for the Messiah, and now are you going to turn away from it because you do not trust that God is big enough because of your fears, because of your pride, because of whatever it is that holds you back from accepting the hero that has come for us? And this applies to the Hebrews, but it applies to you and to me. And so he says, in your community, stop putting up roadblocks to believing in Jesus and start encouraging one another to have faith, to trust in what God has done. See, they were tempted to hold the law and the signs as, as, as higher. They were tempted to say, maybe Jesus isn't it. We need to go back to the wilderness. We need to go wander some more. Just like the law was a journey to the destination of the promised, uh, just like the wilderness was a journey to the destination of the promised land, so also the law, the old covenant, is a journey to the destination of the promised Messiah. And in fact, the promised land itself was just a picture of the Messiah. How much bigger is this, the author of Hebrews keeps saying. If you think it was weird that they turned aside, how much stranger is it that you turn aside? And again, this applies to us. I don't know who you are, where you come from. I don't have a magic crystal ball to see out there in Facebook land today, tonight. But I know that some of you have turned aside from the Messiah. You've heard the gospel, but you haven't believed it. You don't believe that God could be that good, or could be that right, or you've misunderstood what it was supposed to look like. And because of that, you've turned aside, and you've not experienced the rest, and you continue to wander. And this is the exhortation of the author of Hebrews. But the exhortation is also not only for them to believe, but it's for them to encourage each other to believe. And I do want to say this, for those of you who are part of the church, who do believe in Christ, the church of God in America has wrestled historically with the idea of accountability. We know that somehow we're supposed to help each other. We know that somehow we want to live the way that Jesus wants us to live. So what does accountability in the church look like? Does it look like me telling you what to do and then staying on top of you to make sure you do it? Does it look like getting together in groups where we, we judge each other and condemn each other and make sure that we all do exactly the right thing? Does it mean conforming to a certain pattern of thought? It actually doesn't mean any of that. Accountability is this. It's what the author of Hebrews tells us here. Accountability is not encouraging conformity of thought. Accountability is not making sure we all behave exactly the same way. Accountability is encouraging us to have faith. It's encouraging us not to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's encouraging us, as long as it's today, to continue to trust and depend upon Jesus. It's to remember that our rest is in the faith in the Messiah. 
to keep pointing us back to Jesus. If your church, if our church, if our churches are not pointing people back to Jesus, if that is not our regular routine, we're missing it. Because that should be our routine. Because that is what accountability is. To point people back to faith. You know, it's interesting. We're wrestling even in our country with the idea of unity. And it mirrors some of what the church is wrestling with as an idea of unity. You know, in our country right now, I've come to realize that part of the problem, some people react even poorly to Biden's speech about unity. I know some people just don't think he's genuine, and time will tell. But some people have responded poorly because they say that we shouldn't be united, right? I've even heard that. You're not unity because we've always disagreed. Yeah, but that's not what unity means. So here's the thing. Unity does not mean unanimity of thought. It doesn't mean we agree on every single point. That has never been true in our country. We have never been united on all points, but what we have been is united on core principles. And when you're united on core principles, then you can disagree on the methodology, the strategies, the structures, even values that are outside of those core principles. But if you know what the core principles are, you can be united, which allows you to compromise without compromising on the core principles. See, compromise has become a dirty word in politics. But that is the only way politics works. Have you noticed that, by the way? <laughs> when there's no compromise, politics doesn't work very well. And, and the truth is that what allows us to compromise is unity around core principles. I hope we get back to that. But I'm not really talking about this country. I'm talking about our churches. So the American church has the same issue. We become confused into thinking that unity means unanimity. The only religion, the only people, the only communities that really believe in unanimity of thought when it comes to religion are cults. I'm sorry. Christians do not believe in unanimity of all thoughts. We believe there's a great diversity among people. We believe that there are going to be different thoughts. I'm not saying that all thoughts are equally valid. Obviously, your thoughts, when they're in disagreement with mine, are less valid. But the point, I'm joking, but the point is that we can have a unity around core principles and still disagree around the fringes. Paul calls those disputable areas. There's room for that. Our unity doesn't come from all thinking exactly the same and having exactly the same sort of perspective. That would be a shame, because there's power in our diversity within our communities as well. But unity does mean that we share a common faith. We share a common devotion to the same Lord of the same gospel. And that is what the author of Hebrews is exhorting them not only to believe, but to exhort each other to believe. Our job is to encourage each other daily to live by faith. To seek that dependence in Christ, not just for our salvation, but for everything, day after day after day. This is where our rest is. He continues, he goes on. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Not if we do all the right things, not if we behave in all the right ways, because we're going to mess up sometimes. But faith comes back to faith. And as has just been said, in fact, he's going to repeat the story. Now that you know it, this will make more sense. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. To the author of Hebrews, all these points about disobedience and sin all come back to faith. There may be behaviors they were engaged in, but the behaviors are secondary. The behaviors come as a result of what they did or didn't believe. They were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promising of his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. How do you fall short of the rest? 
by not believing, not by not living up to the, to the perfect behavior you somehow think is what it's about. No, by not believing. For we also have the, have the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So I'm going to wrap up tonight by saying a few words about faith, because that is what this is all about. But there's some confusion about what faith means. So the first thing he says here is that the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith. That's interesting, right? God gives this message. What's the message to them, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites? The message to the Israelites was, here's a land, it's made for you, it's full of milk and honey, it's yours, and you will rest. This is the place you can stop wandering, stop being a nomad. You can build a nation here, and a kingdom here. That was the promise, right? That's a valuable promise. How can you say that message had no value? Well, because... If you don't believe it, and you don't enter the promised land, it has no value. Paul says the same thing about the gospel, that the gospel is the best news ever. In fact, the good news of the gospel is, again, the fulfillment of what the promised land was only a shadow. The promised land was simply a foreshadowing, a picture, a type to tell us about what was coming. But, but Paul says the same thing. Even that good news is of no value if you don't believe. He says it this way. The gospel, the good news, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's not the power of God for those who don't believe. How can God's power be mitigated this way? Well, let's see if we can explain this. And this is the first thing I want to talk about is the power of faith. There is a power in faith. And it is a power that has something to do with adding value or, or, or finding value in the message that's been given to us. The message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. How does faith have power? It's really not mysterious. I don't even think this is a spiritual principle as much as it is a practical one. Now, maybe there's a spiritual element too. It could be. But I want you to think about this a second because really I think to see it at a simple, most practical matter will be the clearest for us and help us avoid a couple of other pitfalls about power and faith. Just think of it this way. It, it makes perfect sense with the promised land, right? You see them coming to the promised land and they don't enter because they don't believe God. And because they don't believe God and don't enter, the promised land has no value to them. For that generation that died out, it meant nothing. The message that God had gave was of no value to them. It's like this. Let's say that I come to you. For a moment, forget we're on Facebook. Let's pretend it's you and me. It's post-COVID, and here I am, and we're sitting together, and we're just chatting, and it's just you and me, right? You and me, you and me personally, and I'm talking to you, and I say to you, I have done an amazing thing for you. I have created a bank account in your name. Don't ask me how I did it, I have my ways. But I've created a bank account in your name and I have put $1.6 trillion in your bank account, right? You can pay for a stimulus package if you want to. I have given you $1.6 trillion, it's in your bank account. Here's the account number. I just need you to go down to the bank and sign for it. Now, if you know me, and even if you don't, you would be wise to not believe me. Let's, let's just be honest, right? I mean, it could be a much smaller amount, and you could still be wise not to believe me. But let's say that you, you don't believe me, and it's not true, and everything's good. But just for the sake of our argument for the moment, for the sake of our discussion, let's pretend that I actually have $1.6 trillion, and I actually opened an account, and I actually put that money in there for you, and it is all yours. The money is yours. I actually already have given the money to you. Legally, it's your money. But when I hand you that account number, what if you don't believe me? What if you, as I would understand, say, well, he's crazy as the day is long, and you take that money and you throw it away, or you take that account number and you throw it away? Well, here's what's interesting. I just gave you very good news, but how much value did that good news have for you? It didn't change your life at all. It gives you no power. You weren't able to do any good stuff with that money. Why? Because you didn't believe me. It's that simple. 
the faith gives power to the message by saying yes. You have to say yes to the message for it to matter. These, there are some truths which if you do not accept, they do not change you. But if you do accept, they do change you. And here's where the spiritual element comes in. With the gospel, somehow, what Jesus did at the cross is of that nature. It's like a bank account that's been given to us. We have to say yes. When we say yes to it, that's faith. And there's power in saying yes. There's power in the faith. And so that is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. That it has no value if you don't believe. So here we have the Messiah. The Messiah has saved us. He has come. He has started his kingdom. He has anointed. He is anointed. He is the hero. And yet all his heroism and all his sacrifice will mean nothing to you if you do not accept it. There's a beautiful subjectivity to Christianity which doesn't erase its objectivity. But there is a confusion that comes up. And it's really important to note and not be confused about this. When we talk about the power of faith, and that the message has no power if you don't believe, it is really, really important to understand the power is in the message. And it's just saying yes to that power that we're talking about. The power is not in the faith itself. See, the American church has started to idolize faith in some really unhealthy ways, in which we think there's power in faith itself. We think that the mere act of believing is what makes the message real. That's nonsense. That makes no sense at all. If the Israelites had stopped in the middle of their wandering and hadn't gotten to Canaan yet, but simply said, we're going to believe God that this is the promised land, and then set up root right there, it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't really make that the promised land. They would be as bad off as they were when they didn't believe about the promised land. So the fact that at one point they believe in the promised land, and the other point they don't believe in the promised land, the only thing that matters is where the promised land really is. <laughs> and are they believing the truth? See, faith is not just positive thinking. Faith is not willpower. We've come to think of faith as just this willpower. If I just believe hard enough, and we grit our teeth, and we say, I'm going to believe these things. But the fact is, the ability to believe things in and of itself is not power at all. It could be denial, right? You might believe something that's just denial. It could be lunacy. You could be crazy. Just because you believe something, that's not power. It's the message has the power. The promised land is the power. The gospel is the power. You have to say yes to it. But just saying yes to everything, that's not power. In fact, that's as, that's as powerless as saying no to everything. It's so important we understand the powers in the message. And that leads to another really important point that Jesus makes. And that's that if the power's in the message and not in the faith, what it means is that there's something else we tend to get wrong, and that's that we think the amount of faith matters. But you know what? It doesn't. As long as, now you do have to hear this one caveat, as long as the faith is greater than zero, the amount of faith is irrelevant. Now, there is a difference between faith and no faith. And if you have no faith, right, if, if you don't believe at all, well, that, then, then it's not going to matter. But you know who says this, that the amount of faith is not the crucial point, that the amount of faith is really irrelevant as long as there's any? Jesus. You know when he tells that story, he says at one point that if you have faith, you can move mountains. But he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, why pick a mustard seed? Because his point is he picked the smallest element that he could think of that those people would relate to. I think if he was here today, he would say to us, if you have faith the size of a molecule, right? What is the small, an atom, a molecule, a neuron? What, what is the small, neutron? What is the smallest thing we can think of? He would say, if your faith is just that size, and yet God wants to move a mountain, you can move that mountain if you have that faith. Because the point is God is moving the mountain. See, we get this confused. 
Jesus never said that your faith, he never, he, he used a shorthand, but he never meant that simply believing a mountain would move would make it move. No, he meant that God can move mountains. And if he says to you, I'm going to move that mountain, go over there and give it a shove. Well, then you just need the faith of a mustard seed to go give it a shove. But you don't need to have complete confidence it's going to happen. You don't have to be 100% pure in your faith. The scripture never says that anywhere. It never says that faith means not having doubts. And the reason this is so important to me to make sure that we are clear on this is because it is preventing many people from coming to the gospel. Because they are convinced they have to drum up a certain level of certainty and confidence. They have to drum up a certain amount of faith before the gospel will change them. That's nonsense. That would just be having faith in your own faith, in your own willpower, in your own ability to decide what you want to believe. That's not the way it works. All the faith is is saying yes to Jesus. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. I have come. I have died on the cross. I have brought you to the promised land. I'm offering you rest. And all I'm asking you to do is say yes. I have 1.2 trillion in your account. I'm just asking you to say yes. Like if you go to that bank account and you sign it and you're only half convinced it's true, guess what? The money's still yours. <laughs> yeah, there has to be enough faith to say yes. But that's it. Really, that is it. This is so important. And this is what the author of Hebrews is telling them. They lacked, they didn't receive the promised land. The power was there, the message was there, the truth was there, the gospel is real. But, they just didn't believe him. So that's the challenge for you today, church. That's the challenge for you today, those of you who are listening in. It's not to will yourself into confidence, but to simply say yes to God. Look, Jesus offers you rest. Rest from making yourself lovable, making yourself worthy, making yourself acceptable, from always being right, from always pleasing people, from perfectionism, from the need to always be entertained or your own insecurities or your obsessive self-absorption or greed. He offers you rest. And all he asks is that you say yes. He doesn't ask that you say yes at a certain volume. He doesn't ask that you say yes, 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 yes. It's all good if you do. But all he asks is that you say yes to Jesus. I'm speaking to some of my friends out there that I know are on the fence with the gospel, and they're just afraid. They can't quite work themselves into that perfect state of faith. Guess what? You don't have to work yourself into a perfect state of faith. Just say yes. Jesus has done it for you. Take rest from the worrying about trying to work yourself into a perfect state of faith. The whole point of the gospel is that you don't have to make yourself righteous. You don't have to make yourself acceptable. Jesus has paved the way for you. Just say yes. And what about the rest of us, those of us who have believed, those of us who have embraced the gospel, we've said yes. Well, amen, praise God. You've been saved from yourselves, your sin, your mortality, and the love of God cannot be undone, right? I believe that that is secure and that is settled. But we are still called to continue to depend on Christ for all these things. We are still called to rest in faith in him. We still have a daily choice to trust in our Messiah, to bring us all those things that he promises us, or to not. We still have the choice to take his, uh, his yoke upon ourselves and rest. We still have the choice to, to make ourselves acceptable or believe that he's done it for us. We have that choice every day and every moment, and sometimes we fail it, and sometimes our faith is lacking. But the good news is the good news, and we can always enter that promised land, just say yes. But here's the thing. The world is not going to encourage you to do that. Please understand this. It's, it's understandable. This is not an indictment of anybody. This is just a reality. The church is comprised, the house of God is comprised of those who believe and have confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's a whole lot of people out there who don't have that confidence. 
who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they see you give yourself over to something which to them looks like foolishness. To them looks like idiocy. To them just looks like lunacy, right? There may be even some in the church who don't understand why you would put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. But the point is, nobody outside of the church is ever going to encourage you to do that. Which is why you need to be in the church. Which is why you need to be in a community surrounded by people who can help you, encourage you, as long as today is today, to continue to trust in Jesus. Not trust in the next fad, the next doctrine, the next theology, the next creed, the next philosophy, the next politician, the next celebrity, the next great movement, the next self-help book. Those things are all real. Perhaps they have their place, but they will not give you rest. And they will not bring you life. And the church community is the only place where you have a chance of people encouraging you today as long as it's today. And if you're in the church, that is your job, right? That is your obligation. See to it that none among you has an unbelieving heart. Encourage one another today as long as it's called today to continue to have faith, to trust in Jesus. I see communities outside encouraging people to trust in all sorts of things. And they are so strong and they double down. And they do not have the reasons for the confidence that we have in Jesus. He's proved himself. He's demonstrated his love at the cross. He's demonstrated his power at the cross. You can let that $1.4 trillion sit unused. You can leave the promised land and go back the other direction and turn away from God. You can return to the wilderness and forage. And unfortunately, we do that over and over and over. And that's why we need help. Look, we need people to remind us every day, as long as it's called today, to stand in faith. I've been a Christian long enough that I've had the heartbreaking moment of watching people, faithful people, people who were strong in their faith, who make a left turn I never would have thought would have happened, and end up wandering in the wilderness. And it's because they removed themselves at a certain point from the communities which really encouraged them to stand in faith. The church doesn't exist to tell you what you're doing wrong. The church doesn't exist to tell you what you should do. The church doesn't exist to require you to think as we do or even act as we do. The church exists in large part to be a community where we all seek the same faith, the same dependence, the same devotion to the same Lord, and the same embracing of the same gospel, and the same submission, and the same rest. And if you give us permission at Focus, we would love to help you pursue faith, to grow in faith, and to rest in faith. We haven't got it all figured out, but this I know. Our only hope is Christ. And if we do not remind each other to do that, if we do not encourage each other to continue to turn to Him, there are a million distractions which will pull our eyes away from Jesus. Remember how this chapter started? Fix your eyes on Jesus. But we need help doing that. Sometimes we need someone to turn our heads. Sometimes we need someone to point them out. Sometimes we need someone to just ask us where we are in our faith. To love us when we're wandering in the wilderness and to love us when we're entering the promised land, but to always be pointing us back to Jesus. And that's why focus exists. That's why any church exists. And so, if you want to be part of that, please do. If you don't, find a community where you can. What we're doing at Focus right now, we have our Sunday nights like this, where we'll continue to push you towards Jesus in faith. If I preach a sermon which doesn't ultimately do that, I think I've missed the mark. Now, that can happen in a lot of ways, but if I'm not reaching for that, if that's not the goal, I've ultimately missed the mark. 
Monday nights of uh, the journey, we go chronologically through Scripture. Like the author of Hebrews does, it gives us a chance to see all the shadows and pictures and foreshadowings and then the reality of Jesus. It's fantastic. You're welcome to join us. Ask me for the Zoom link. I'll send it to you. On Wednesday nights, we have a midweek faith lift. The goal is to point your eyes back to God, to faith, to dependence on Jesus. And of course, for us, the heart, the most important part of our church, the thing that's indispensable to us, those other three things could go away tomorrow, and we would still be a church. But if we lose this last thing, we're not a church. For us, the essence of who we are is our small groups, our focus groups, our little communities. Why? Because that's where rubber meets the road, and we can encourage one another every day, as long as it's today, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Thank you for hanging out with me tonight. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I hope that you do keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and we'd love to help you do that. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.